Just to bring us back up to speed, we are looking at the book of Proverbs, and if you recall, Proverbs has several books within the book. That's a little bit of an exaggeration, but at least get your mind wrapped around a structure that isn't immediately obvious if you're just looking at your English translation. The first nine chapters are uh, written by Solomon, and these form uh, obviously a number of proverbs in and of themselves, but form a basis through which the rest of the text ought to be read. We see that this section, these first nine chapters, are divided into various addresses to a son. In fact, there's ten of them, and then various poems on wisdom. There's three of them. Once we conclude with that, we hit chapter 10, roughly speaking, and go the next 13 chapters, and there we have what are more commonly referred to as the Proverbs of Solomon, uh, various wisdom sayings interrelated with one another, um, advice to faithful sons and whatnot. As we saw in chapter 1, the foundation of the book of Proverbs is verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That immediately renders clear for us that we're not reading a book like Aesop's Fables or you know, the collected wisdom from the centuries or some such thing, but fearing the Lord immediately puts one in the position of being wise, whereas those who do not fear the Lord are put in the position of being fools. So you can, which I am a little reluctant to do, but you can simplify this all the way down to the faithful are the wise, and we want to ever increase in wisdom, and the unbelieving are fools, and they ever increase in foolishness. So these are the two different ways, and we're going to look at how these two different ways can further be contrasted with one another, but these are the two different ways in which one can walk or journey through this life, in fear of the Lord and in wisdom, or in rejection of the Lord and in foolishness. Last week, we were looking at the first address to a son that begins in chapter 1 at verse 8, and it goes through verse 19. And if memory serves, we finished this section out. And if we got into the next section, uh, verse 20 through 33, it was not by much. So this first address to the Son, of course, ends with a very important warning that this father not have his son, and of course this You can think of this concretely if you want with Solomon and his son. Of course, that didn't work out very well. But you can think of this as a literary device. And so we are positioning ourselves as sons receiving the wisdom of the Father. And here we are warned not to follow those who lie in wait for blood. Those who are after blood greedy gain and unjust or unrighteous gain and they're willing to shed blood to do so. So avoid them and we will avoid their fate, go with them and we will suffer their fate and their fate is ironically in verse 
18 and 19, that while they're lying in wait for others, God will see to it that their trap is sprung upon their own heads. So while lying in wait for the blood of others, they are in fact lying in wait, ironically, for their own blood. And then the parallel statement at the end of verse 18, while set in, am- set in ambush against others, they are in fact, God will see to it so that it is the case, set in ambush against their own lives. And then we have this concluding statement, such are the ways, and that language becomes increasingly important as we go along, such are the ways, the paths, of everyone who is greedy for unjust or unrighteous gain. You can hear an echo of that in our Lord's teaching of unrighteous mammon, unrighteous gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. End of verse 19 and end of this section. Um, Those who end up possessing it are possessed by it. Those who are willing to take life to gain it will buy it, lose their lives. There are a number of poetic ways that we can express that thought, but it is a profound one. So in short, I think you could safely summarize this as you don't actually get away with anything. So don't try. And here is a father's warning to the son to not do these things. Otherwise, it's going to end badly for you. We use the, the analogy at the end of last class period of you know, a father who's got a little son and the son can't see up to the top of the stove and the father says, don't reach up and touch the stove. Is, is the father being a legalist? Is his admonition simply there to condemn the son, to make the son aware of the sinful desire within him. No. (laughs) It is there so that he doesn't touch the stove and burn his fingers. That's why that commandment is there. And so thus also this commandment and thus also so many of God's commandments. And I think that this can be extrapolated to all of the law, that the law isn't simply arbitrary. It's not just a list of rules that God concocted out of the blue, but rather in doing these things, you are bringing pain and suffering upon yourself and others. Every single commandment is a kind of, don't touch the stove. Well, what happens if I touch it? You're going to get hurt and the people around you are going to get hurt. And we spoke too of this idea that we find throughout the scriptures I think codified and summarized so beautifully in 1 John, where he says, I write these things to you that you may not sin, that you do not sin. But if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, the righteous one, Jesus Christ. Okay, better to not sin at all than to sin and need forgiveness. Better to not get your fingers burnt at all than to need salve and a bandage. You see? Or massive surgery, as the case may be. So that is a very important aspect of the law and a very important aspect of the way of wisdom. And it's one of the ways in which also we're going to see this theme come up in, 
in the lectionary, the one-year lectionary, next week where Jesus asks lawyers and Pharisees if it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath. A rather profound and thought-provoking question. Does the law allow for mercy? Does the law have within it the very nature of mercy? Difficult questions for us to wrap our minds around as 21st century Lutherans, but important ones for us to do. Because in that commandment of the Father to his Son, don't touch the stove, don't do this, there is a kind of mercy there. What kind of father would just say, eh, have at it? Or what kind of son would say, well, I can clearly see that my father has arbitrarily commanded me not to touch the top of the stove, but I'm going to go ahead and touch the top of the stove and just receive forgiveness later. Kind of missing the point. So these are the themes we meditated on, and I think that they are very good themes to keep in mind because that's one of the things that the the book of Proverbs does is brings out the reality of the nature of the law and the nature of our lives according to it, the way of wisdom and the way of foolishness. All right, so doing my best uh, to summarize that first address from a father to a son, we will then move into the first poem about wisdom that begins at verse 20. Before we do, let me pause, see if you have any questions or reflections from this morning or the previous class. If not, that's fine. Just gives me an opportunity to drink some coffee. Okay, there's a couple. Wait a minute. Do we have a microphone person? Not, not really. Okay. Our microphone people are, are on vacation, I think. Why don't you... Um, uh, go ahead and ask your question. And I'll try to re. Uh, I'll try to speak it um, for those online. Please. Yeah, here's what I think about the uses of the law. Um, If you look for a chapter and verse in the Bible that explains what the three uses are, you'll fail to find one. So what this is, is a theological construct. And as with all theological constructs, they are only helpful insofar as they are helpful. Okay, And many of those constructs are designed to answer a or a set of very specific theological questions. So I think it is in fact healthier at this level to pull all the way back, and you can simply pull all the way back to, because you'll see the same dynamic at play, you can pull all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God says, you may eat of every tree of the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. I mean, law or gospel? At that point, the question doesn't make any sense. 
that commandment not to eat is as much as a gift as the commandment to eat. Indeed, that's what Luther says in his uh, lectures on Genesis, that every Sabbath, Adam and Eve, and later on their progeny, would gather around that tree and recall the words of the Lord, how he has given everything and withheld this one thing. And Luther says from that you could have extrapolated everything we think we know about God and more. In other words, what you simply have prior to the fall is the word of the Lord. What you have after the fall then is a word of the Lord that then starts to interact with us in different ways. And that's usually the description of the uses or functions of the law. And that word functions here is probably a little more accurate in terms of how the law functions when sinners hear it. But the holy angels aren't like hearing the law and being driven away in terror. Neither are the saints. So again, those, those functions of the use are important insofar as how they interact with the sinner. So we might read this and be condemned and say, okay, well, I've touched the stove a lot. Um, or we might read this and say, oh yeah, I remember touching the stove and I remember what happened and I never want to do that again. You know, second use, first use. Um, How good is God that he guides and delivers us from touching the stove and how I long to pass that on to my children. Third use. But these are all reactions within the hearer's heart. And I think that there, there we can have an important distinction. Is God... Let's just stick with, let's just stick with uh, this first address from a father to a son. Is God here trying to get everyone to feel guilty? No. Exegetically, that's not what he's up to. He's trying to keep people from falling into gross and grievous sin. And why so? For our good. That's where it kind of defies these functions. Because it's not just the bare threat of punishment, the carrot or the stick of the first use. It's clearly not a second use. And you could, it's arguably a third use, uh, an intended third use, arguably. Um, but even then, I just wonder if trying to lay that frame upon it doesn't end up distorting a bit. Okay, so if God gives his law and that law is written in the first place on every human heart, then why does he bring the law on stone tablets down from Sinai with thunder and lightning and with the whole old covenant requiring the blood of countless animals to be sacrificed and atonement for our sin, etc., etc.? That's where St. Paul is so helpful and books like Romans and Galatians are so helpful because there the law that is the cyanatic covenant with its glory and awe and terror and majesty and the just penalty of sin and the necessity of blood atonement, the wrath of God made manifest. Um, Yes, that law or the law in that sense is given so that sin might appear exceedingly Sinful, so that we might repent. That's getting to the, like, well, why would God do this? If God has promised grace and mercy, if God has filled us with wisdom and instruction, the cyanatic covenant doesn't make much sense. Circumcision doesn't make much sense. Moses 
flinging the blood of bulls all over everybody's Sunday best doesn't make much sense. God who promised the Messiah to Adam and Eve and to every generation, again to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to every generation, why is he now showing up with such awe and terror that the people don't say, oh gosh, I wish God would speak to me in my heart. They say, I wish that God would, may he only speak to us through Moses. I wish I would never hear that sound again. It's utterly terrifying. They don't even want to go near the mountain because of the thunderings and lightnings and the threat that they will be put to death. Uh, if they, so w- why? Why does God do that out of the blue? That's what Paul's answering in Romans and Galatians. The cyanatic covenant, the law in that way, shape, and form are given to terrify us and drive us to Christ. Thus a pedagogue, a guide, uh, to drive us into the inheritance which we have in Christ Jesus. and So there would be sort of the Sede's doctrina, the seat and source of the root of the law and its full condemning power. And you can find all kinds of antecedents for this uh, earlier and, and later in the text. But again, this is all a result of the fall and God dealing with sinners. And so then his himself, his word, and everything that goes along with it uh, takes this shape and form in order to drive us to Christ. This is where the this kind of work of God is called uh, by Luther and the Reformers the opus alienum, the uh, alien work of God. This is not, in fact, who God is. This is only how God expresses himself in order to work the salvation of sinners. In this case, bring to repentance so that he may have mercy and absolve and bestow saving faith upon them. So anyway, sorry for the long discourse, but I feel like hopefully that'll flesh out uh, a bigger picture and, and maybe satisfy. Okay, yes, please. This has to do with the word beginning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And mm-hmm. I Mm-hmm. When we have the phrase, in the beginning was the word, is there a corollary with the word beginning there, the source? Or Yeah, yeah. it's always worth thinking about when you see in the scriptures the language. Uh, so you, if you see it in English as in the beginning, or in this case, the beginning, it's always worthwhile to consider it as source. But just to consider it as such, it can have chronological meaning or sense to it. It can have the sense of start, but it can also have the sense of source. And I think here it is, I thank you for your comment, because I think here it is worth drawing out. Um, The beginning, or fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or the beginning of wisdom. Um, Yes, the fear of the Lord is the source of knowledge or the source of wisdom. And again, I'm reticent to do this, but just for the sake of it, if the fear of the Lord is basically synonymous with faith, then understanding or wisdom only flows from and follows faith. Faith, we can parse that out. Faith includes a repentant heart, the acknowledgement that I'm a sinner, and faith includes that trust that though I am a sinner, Christ has provided the sacrifice of atonement for me. So faith has those two kinds of aspects. And in a sense, you could even differentiate and make a distinction. It's not native to the text, but make a distinction there on the basis of fear. There's fear um, 
by the law that accuses me of my sin, and then there's fear that acknowledges with awe and reverence and holiest thanksgiving that Christ has atoned for those very sins. And so a kind of twofold fear corresponding with our experience of law and gospel. All right, anything else? Let's jump in then to the first of three poems on wisdom. Chapter 1, verse 20. Wisdom cries aloud in the street, more literally in the public, the the public sphere. In the markets, she raises her voice. So these would have been the places in the ancient world where if you had an announcement to make, you know, you can't just get on your favorite social media app and make your announcement to the world. You can't go on to Facebook and post your status or whatever it is. Uh, so you, you go out into the markets and you raise your voice into the public or the streets, sometimes the gate of the city. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. Now, the she, of course, connects in a very small way with wisdom just grammatically because wisdom in Hebrew and in Greek is feminine, and so it's necessary to translate the pronoun with she. Um, But it is a little more than that because we're going to be presented, especially in these first nine chapters, with two different she's, two different Women, and this is going to be a literary device. So, no problem here to see wisdom personified as a woman, even though we know that Christ is the wisdom of God. So, with kind of a bifocal lens, I think if you want to look more deeply anywhere where there's wisdom, you can see Christ, but with the other focal point, in terms of just the literature, the art, the beauty of Proverbs, you're going to see here the feminine. You're going to see wisdom personified in the female. So she's crying aloud in the public places, in the market. She's raising her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. So quite the introduction. Four lines there to build the gravitas. Now, what does she say? How long, O simple ones? Here is a case where uh, simple ones could easily be translated as gullible ones. Um, Foolish ones is definitely the sense. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers... And here, at least, it's clearer in my mind if we said mockers, which is a fine translation of that word. How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing? How long will mockers delight in their mocking? And fools hate knowledge. So she cries out with these questions, which carry implicit rebuke and then leads in verse 23 with what her intentions are. If you turn, this word sometimes used synonymously with repent, if you turn at my reproof, 
Now, reproof here is, could just as easily be translated as warning or life-saving admonition, that kind of motif we've been using with the father and his son in the stove, very much apropos of this word reproof. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. So, if you put on your New Testament glasses, who is the one who pours out the Spirit on man? Christ. Christ. Out of, out of his belly flow those living waters, and of course, less subtly, at Pentecost, he pours out his Holy Spirit upon the church in fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel on all flesh. So again, here you see a Christological illusion. If you turn at my reproof, so if if you repent, behold, I will pour pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. And there you can see the parallel between spirit and word and the interconnection between those two. This is kind of the other side of the coin of the doctrine of perspicuity. The doctrine of perspicuity is that the central or fundamental teachings, the law and the gospel specifically, are clear in the scriptures. You don't need a decoder ring to figure out the basics. It's available to all. It's perspicuous. The other side of that coin is, however, on account of our sins, our ability to see and read and comprehend what is there objectively, what is perspicuous objectively, is dulled and distorted. And that's the other side of the coin to which a verse like this is speaking. That it's not enough to merely have the words We have to make the words known, or they have to be made known to us, rather. So you have these two things connected. The pouring out of the Spirit, which properly speaking would be a capital S, and the making of my words known to you, the making of of her words known to us. All right, so this is the opening salvo. We have the the context and the setup that this is not merely spoken to Jewish people or Hebrew people. This is spoken to the whole world, to the whole city, to all who have come therein. There is the rebuke, not to be simple, not to be mockers, not to hate knowledge. And then to turn at the reproof, to repent, with the promise given that the spirit of wisdom will be poured upon us and the words of wisdom will be made known to us. Clear enough, hopefully. If not, hold your question for just a moment. What comes next has a little bit of a chiastic structure. That's the chi in Greek, and it just means you're going to see some parallels, and that'll help us understand what's going on. Verse 24, because I have called 
and you refused to listen. So the onus is placed not on wisdom. Wisdom has been calling out, but the onus has been placed on the hearers who refuse to listen. Okay, because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Um, more literally, no one has been paying attention. So picture a city. Picture the woman in the streets of the city or the gates of the city calling out and no one's paying attention. Do they hear her? Yes, they physically hear her. Are they listening to her? No. What are they doing instead? Going about their business of buying and selling. Why don't they stop and listen and engage even though they hear? They're too busy. And that is a beautiful picture of, it's a microcosm of the nature of the whole world. The gospel has gone forth. The preaching of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Christ's name has gone forth, continues to go forth. It's calling everyone. It's completely public. And yet there are many who are simply too busy in the marketplace of life to hear. And so that is not only a, a description, but a kind of rebuke. We see a microcosm here of all reality. So wisdom, in this case God, is calling out, but man is refusing to listen, stretching out his hand. No one is heeding. No one's paying attention. Everyone's too busy. And then verse 25 kind of parallel that springs us forward. Because you have ignored my counsel or all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. Now, briefly, that takes us back to verse 23. If you turn at my reproof. So the reproof is given for the sake of turning the people to wisdom. But because you ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. Now, where did we hear the mocking first? Back at verse 22. How long will mockers delight in their mocking? So what you can see here is there are parallels. Wisdom's crying out and she's being mocked. So then when the mockers fall into danger, she will mock them. This is the indignation of God. God laughing in derision at the wicked who have set themselves against him. And why is God telling us this? I mean, functionally, it heightens the threat, it heightens the call to turn and heed wisdom, but then it also tells us descriptively of what's going to happen and that when it happens to the wicked, we shouldn't pity them. If God, and here's an important lesson, boy, a difficult lesson, but an important lesson, a lifelong massive kind of lesson, but if God doesn't pity someone, we shouldn't either. The very attempt to be more merciful than God is foolish 
at the very least, but arrogant and prideful at its heart. So to have our sense of pity conformed to God's sense of pity is in fact a goal. If we consider ourselves to be more merciful than God or to pity others where God does not pity them, we de facto put, in our, put ourselves in a position of sitting in judgment upon God. That's where the pity and the mercy which have the appearance of graciousness and better character actually reveal themselves in fact to be a condemnation of God's justice, of God himself, and thus an, abomin- an abomination rather than a merit. Okay, so an important lesson here when we see wisdom laughing at the calamity of those who rejected her and now mocking those who mocked her. So once more, 26, I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. Which even more so in the ancient world than today is is a calamity that comes out of nowhere. With all of our radar and news and everything else, we can say, oh, a storm's likely to come. Although I think tornadoes in the Midwest, sometimes there's a warning or a threat, but where exactly it pops up or when exactly it pops up is still a matter of pretty low predictability. Even more so in the ancient world, these things came upon one suddenly and in a devastating way. And that's what's being hinted at here, is that when God does finally have enough, when his long-suffering has come to an end, when he enacts his just wrath, uh, it comes so suddenly there's no time to change. So when terror strikes you, like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me. Now, notice the parallel with verse 24. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, now Terror comes, and on account of your foolishness, now you will call upon me, but I will not answer. So you can see in verse 28 a direct parallel to 24. Mocking in 26, parallel to the mocking in 22. Then they will call upon me, verse 28, but... I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of Yahweh, the fear of the Lord. That takes us back to the theme, the foundation in chapter 1, verse 7. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and reproof. Where have we heard that before? 30 ties back to 25. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. Now here, um, 
would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. So concretely, what does it mean to eat the fruit of their way? Well, the disastrous path that they were marching on led to disaster. Big surprise. I think we're kind of seeing that like with our economy, maybe. Everybody knows it's a disaster. Everybody knows it's going disastrously. We've known it for years and years, if not decades, and it's leading to disaster. Oh, dear. Who could have ever foreseen this? So in that, in that primary sense, eating the fruit of their way as they walked a disastrous path, now they've received disaster. But there are some other things that we can point out here. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way, which one can't help but think where this is really descriptive of unbelief and unbelievers and those who will not repent and turn toward the Lord's wisdom. Then they shall eat the fruit of their way. That thought ties all the way back to Adam and Eve eating the fruit and having their way. I think it's Peter Kraft. Uh, I think he's probably retired now. He was a philosopher at Boston College. He's kind of like the living C.S. Lewis. But he always, who was it that sang Sinatra? Um, I did it my way. That that's the theme song of hell. <laughs> I didn't, did I do it God's way? Nope, I did it my way. Be very unnerving if you get to the lobby of wherever you're going and that's playing in the background. (laughs) So this this also has a tie-in. So therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way. They have chosen this. And have their fill of their own devices. That of course goes back to verse 18 and 19, the ones lying in the wait for their own blood and setting an ambush or, you know, for their own lives. So their own devices turn upon them. And what you can see here is um, in keeping with what the reformers point out, that the essence of the, the sinful fallen human nature, the corruption of what is good, is the incurvatus and say that is the self curved in on itself so that if you wanted to describe it in our own terms the chief problem with human beings is we're selfish we're not oriented toward god we're not oriented toward neighbor we're oriented toward self and as being essentially selfish and oriented towards self then we want to use god only insofar as he benefits self And we want to have neighbors and or be good to neighbors, but only in so far as they benefit self. And you can see that kind of selfishness, this spiritual solipsism hinted at here with the fruit of their way, the fill of their own devices. Okay, yet another parallel in 32 for the simple, again, the gullible, that gullibility or the gullible as a, as a noun um, takes us back to 22. 
Along with simple ones, we love being simple. Here, for the simple are killed by their turning away. The language of turning, of course, is in 23. You actually have two kinds of turning. So in 23, if you turn at my reproof, if you turn toward me, you'll receive my spirit and I'll make my words known to you. But here, the simple are killed by their turning away. If you turn away from me, you're turning toward your own destruction, your own death. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Okay, so we see a lot of parallels here, intentional parallels. You can see a bit of a chiastic structure if you really analyze this deeply. Otherwise, it's just almost a mere reflection. You have these two different turnings to turn toward wisdom and to turn away from wisdom. But maybe more deeply here, you have, and I didn't really point it out all that much, but you have two different kind of fears. So, of course, in the background at chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. So we keep that in mind. But what is it that strikes those who do not fear the Lord in 26? I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror or fear strikes you. In other words, you will either fear God and then you won't fear calamity or you will not fear God, and thus you will fear calamity. Okay, so you're going to have one fear or the other. That's what I mean by two fears. If you're in your study Bible and you look at the page just opposite this one, 1001, you'll see a section, The Fear of the Lord. And I'll point out a couple of things to you. We won't read it in full. But if you go through the opening section and get to the last line, there the editors write, in other words, when we fear God, there is nothing to be afraid of. If you don't fear God, there is literally everything to be afraid of. Luther talks about this as in many and various ways. But then I think to point this out, um, in what sense do is the fear of the Lord the source of the beginning of wisdom? Uh, at the top of this page 1001 over on the right-hand side, You have this line from the editors. When referring to a person of high position, it takes on the idea of standing in awe or reverence before the individual. God wants us to fear him in this sense. So to entrust ourselves to him, to be filled with awe, and to be filled with reverence. He is our creator and our savior, etc. And then if you just go down to the bottom of that column on page 1001, right-hand side, you'll see a paragraph that begins this way. This fear is closely related to trust because we can truly respect and reverence God only when we believe that he is truly everything that his word, the Bible, says he is. Understanding, quote-unquote, fear of the Lord as trust helps us understand the other or other enigmatic Bible passages such as Psalm 130 verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So let's try it. With you there is forgiveness 
that you may be held in awe or reverence or highest esteem. Ah, makes perfect sense. Okay, so just a few words on that. Um, Again, if you look at 33, this is the whole payoff of having fear of the Lord. And it's the promise, it's it's the gospel conclusion of this first poem on wisdom. And so it really benefits us to slow down and drink this in. Whoever listens to me, wisdom says, will dwell secure. That's the opposite of the wicked, who are in constant fear of disaster and calamity because they have no hope. And so we can dwell secure even when disaster and calamity hit. It was one of the beautiful things that just came shining through in the midst of uh, all the saga with COVID, and especially in those earliest days when we were receiving all the terrible numbers, you know, maybe 15%, maybe 20% of people um, who contract this will die, or at least um, those who are over 50 or over 60, maybe that percentage would get that high. And all the, all the folks we gathered together, all the folks in, in terms of like trying to figure out how we're going to deal with this, and all the folks in the congregation that continued to come and gave phone calls and wrote emails and everything, the general sense was, okay, well, live or die, we are the Lord's. And that's precisely the security in which we dwell. I mean, every day you can wake up and say, well, live or day, live or die, we are the Lord's. If this day is my last, okay. I mean, it doesn't mean I don't have some stuff I've got, I want to accomplish. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but if God calls me out of those duties to himself in heaven, I can rest secure knowing that he's going to provide for whoever is left, you know, behind. <laughs> he's going to provide for um, all the needs of, of the people here on earth. We're not as important as we think we are. We're not as necessary as we think we are. And there's great peace in that. So that we don't have to live every day, you know, in our heads as if we're in the situation room. Just waiting for the next piece of devastating news to shock us to the core and shake our, our very sense of self. No, we can dwell secure knowing that we are the Lord's and we're here for a temporary time. And it's not all going to go well in an earthly sense, but it will still and even so be well in the deepest and spiritual sense. So whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease. Now here the sense is probably better translated at rest. At ease is okay in some contexts, but here probably better at rest. And thus also bringing to our minds what our Lord Jesus says, Come unto me, ye weary, and I will give you rest. In the very next line, paradoxically, he says what? Take my yoke upon you, which if you put a yoke on an oxen, it's not so the oxen can chill out and rest. It's so the oxen can work. I mean, this is, the, this is the fun of Jesus' words. Like, if you listen to Jesus preach and just could hear it fresh, if we all could do this, I mean, you'd just be blown away by the absurdity, the superficial absurdity of some of the things he says. Come unto me, you weary, and I will give you rest. I will wheel out the lawnmower and put your hands upon it. <laughs> <laughs> so, the resting here isn't a, a cessation from labors, per se, and that's why I don't think at ease is maybe the best translation in English. 
But it's this profound peace and rest that we find with him, an answer to our deepest weariness. And in fact, from this, we gain the strength to put our hands to the lawnmower or the plow or our necks under the yoke of his wisdom, realizing that on account of this overwhelming, all-penetrating rest that he bestows upon us, ironically, we're strengthened to carry out our vocations. We're strengthened for that yoke. We're strengthened to put our hand to the plow. We're, and even then, in his, in his rest, we can say, um, yes, this, this burden is indeed light. If for no other reason than it's temporary. Okay, so whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease or at rest without dread or fear of disaster. So that's why I love that line over here on page 1001. When we fear God, there is nothing to be afraid of. Okay, I think I touched on the main points I wanted to get out of this section. We can talk about the two turnings toward wisdom or away from her, the two fears, fearing God or fearing everything else. And we can see emerging in the background two different paths, two different ways, um, the way of wisdom and the way of foolishness, even as we can see that there are wise people and foolish people, people who believe God and people who don't. Let me pause there and see if you have any reflections or anything you'd like to add to that section. Okay, we've got a few hands popping up. Whichever you pick is fine. You have to run through the Pac-Man maze. Yes, good morning. I would like to ask, how do we distinguish between God laughing at calamity of the sinner and the command, love your neighbor as yourself, and then the second um, part of this in our world now, we seem to have a conflict in Christian groups of um, giving, giving without consideration. Just to give is to love um, without work. But... Other Christian groups feel, I think, I'm not saying this so well, but they do make a distinction and um, hope for education and self-reliance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I think that we can fold all those into one essential question. And that is that love takes on different shapes and forms for the sake of neighbor. And when love has been, and all our attempts have been so thoroughly rejected by neighbor, the loving thing is to wish them gone. So that would be the imprecatory psalms, which are so distasteful to the American psyche, they were left out of our hymnal for crying out loud. Don't get me started on what was included at their expense. But this has to do with conforming our notions of love to the love that is inherent in God and, in fact, is God. God is love. Now, the big mistake we make is, oh, I know what love is, and so I'm just going to read that into God. No, 
that is actually, in fact, saying love is God. It's taking my notions of love and imposing them upon God. Is that, in fact, God? No, that is, in fact, idolatry. It is, in fact, me conforming God into my own image. So the big mistake we have is assuming that because I know what love is, I know what God is. Completely the opposite of that. This is why almost all the scriptures that talk about love are utterly confounding and puzzling. Because we're, we're looking at them upside down. We're hanging upside down. The first thing we need to realize is that we know nothing of, God, uh, of love, or at least we know as little about love as we do about God. What do we know about God? Only that which he has revealed about himself to us. Then what do we know about love? Only that which he has revealed to us is love. So our default position as Christians, as God's people, needs to be, I don't have a clue what love is. Isn't there a song? That could be our theme song. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Yeah. So we're in a quest for understanding what love is and what the ways of love are. There is a time and a place where love should just be charitable without any merit toward neighbor. There is a time and a place where love should take on what we call a form of tough love. It should demand um, maybe certain initiative in order for that to be met with a manifestation of love, or maybe love goes first, but then it's dependent upon some sort of response. We do this all the time. Uh, And this doesn't have to be so abstract. Any of you who have children do this. Just think of how you love your children. Dad, I want a piece of candy. It's not even 7 a.m. yet, no. (laughs) That's love. Um, Dad, I want a piece of candy. It's not even 7 a.m. yet. Well, can I have one later today? Well, let's see if you get your homework done. What's wrong with that? It's an expression of love. Um, or there's no asking for the piece of candy whatsoever, and um, at, at the end they, of them doing something great, you say, hey, have a piece of candy. It's love. Or at the end of them doing maybe nothing at all, you say, hey, have a piece of candy. Why do I get this? Because I love you. That's love. It's just love in all these different shapes and forms. What are we doing? We're doing that for, we're taking on, love takes on the shape, those different shapes and forms for the sake of neighbor. And so that's all we're doing is looking at the need of our neighbor and trying to move them in the correct and positive way, which ultimately is the way closer to God and to heaven. So that, thus you have all these expressions of love. But where someone has so rejected that or so rejected God, um, all you can do is heighten the rhetoric to the absolute, which is the kind of thing we see wisdom doing right here. If all wisdom wanted to do, if all God wanted to do was laugh at and mock at the wicked, then why say anything at all? Why not just do it when the wicked fall into calamity? But the fact that God is expressing these things and warning these things, he's turning up the rhetoric to the max. This is what will happen. Why is he doing that? So that they might be cut to the heart and turn to him even still. Okay, so that has to do with the heightened nature of the rhetoric. But at times, of course, and it is absolutely manifestly true, if God is love and people utterly turn their backs on love the only, and refuse to have anything to do with him in this life or the next, then the only loving thing to do is say, have it your way. Go sing Frank Sinatra in some overly warm lobby. That's the answer that love gives. So we have, to refresh our, we have to refresh our whole way of thinking on this. I mean, 
love creates hell for the devil and his angels. And if men insist upon going there, love will dismiss them there. Love punishes. Love will judge. Love does all these things because God is love and that's what love does. So um, I think that then we can reflect in terms of how we love and say, I want to be in conformity with that love with which God loves. If you reread um, 1 John, I don't know, probably starting around chapter 4 in specific, even though the whole thing would be good for you. You could read it all in maybe a half hour. Um, but if you just start at chapter 4, you'll realize that this is what he's saying. And a bunch of statements that are otherwise very enigmatic and hard to understand suddenly become easy to understand. This idea that you get in John, like, that no one, um, that if you don't know and love God, then you've never loved. That strikes us as patently false, but only because we're using a very human notion of love, and we're assuming we know what love is. Where does that ultimately lead us? Well, to the credo of our culture, the credo of stupidity. Love is love. Which is completely a meaningless and asinine statement, but also just happens to be entirely contradictory to all wisdom and to God himself. So, that's, these are things we have to keep in mind as we look at this. Anyway, I thank you for your questions. Very good questions. Hopefully I answered them as, as well as I could, tying them together. Um, I am sorry. I'm seeing that we're over time, so let's meet next week. We can touch base on anything that might still be outstanding. The Lord be with you.